The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. It's the 70s all over again. The workers united will never be defeated. The workers united will never be defeated. That's the sound of railway workers on a picket line in Manchester this week with RMT union boss Mick Lynch firing up the crowds outside Westminster last weekend. If your jobs are being stripped from you, you are in a class struggle. And there are people over there in that parliament who are meant to be on our side who've got to answer the question, which side are you on? And the government's response? We'll have to change the law. The Transport Secretary Grant Shapp speaking on Sky News earlier this week. Uh, And as always hoped, we wouldn't need to get to this point. Uh, But for future strikes, uh, both in in this current uh, strike, but also... Uh, for other strikes, uh, we're going to ensure that the the law is firmly on the passenger side, on the consumer side, when it's not a rail strike. So this week, who's right and who's wrong when it comes to this strike action? But more importantly, what's gone wrong with trains in Britain? They're seen as expensive and unreliable, and despite the promises of privatisation all those years ago, the taxpayer is still bailing them out. Meanwhile, our roads are still clogged with cars and freight. Will we ever see another golden age of rail? or will it all just slowly rust away? Today, are we running late on rail reforms in this country? The Y Curve. And welcome to the latest edition of The Y Curve. I'm Roger Hearing, in with Phil Dobby, and uh, we're going to be interrogating a really rather big subject, of course, the railways, Mm. what they're doing, what they should be doing. Yeah, I think there's four questions we really want to ask in this week, where obviously there's so much disruption because of the uh, the rail strike. Are we actually getting the, the rail service that we need, aside from this strike, just generally? Are railways fit for purpose? Are we getting, as taxpayers, are we getting value for money? Because there's a lot of money being ploughed into uh, providing these rail services around the country, even though supposedly they've all been privatised. Are railway workers getting paid enough? That's the question of the week, isn't it? Is this uh, strike justified? And then looking forwards, is there an actual plan for the future of railways? Do we actually know where we're going, Roger? Well, I think it's simpler than that. I think there's three basic questions. It all relates to transport, really. What's our destination? How are we going to get there? And will we get there on time? And that's what we're going to debate. And we're delighted to say that joining us is, I would say, the doyen of uh, commentators on the railways and transport, Christian Walmart. Christian, welcome to the Y Curve. Thanks so much for being with us today. Well, let's address that first question, I suppose, both from Phil and I, really. It's more or less the same question. What sort of railway should Britain be having in the 21st century? Well, uh, let's first of all say that it's great that we have a railway Uh, and that it's thriving, uh, apart from the recent difficulties and problems. Uh, But, look, this is a 19th century uh, invention that was, at the time, the only way, really, of getting around fast around countries. Uh, You know, basically, uh, before that, it was the horse and lousy roads, uh, and suddenly you could, you know, get from one end of Britain to the other in a few hours, and that transformed uh, the, the nature of both the transport system, but also was the genesis of uh, the capitalism that uh, then kind of has taken us to where we are today. So it's wonderful that this 19th century invention has been remodeled, really, to survive in the 21st. And what you need now is rather different from that. It's no longer the only way of getting around. It's, of course, a way, uh, uh, one way 
uh, along with everything from walking and cycling to uh, driving fast on motorways and uh, even domestic aviation. So what it has to do is uh, establish the core markets in which it's good and uh, work on those. And so what are they? Well, uh, in terms of passengers, there are clearly commuter markets uh, where, you know, uh, going into town for uh, employment or school or whatever is, uh, you know, hell on the roads and the railways perform a wonderful function of that, whether it's trams, the underground or suburban railways. The other market where they really can uh, make a big difference, of course, is the intercity. You know, how really do you choose to get between London and Manchester uh, if you've got the choice? You take the train. It's just over two hours. It's a great way of get, getting around, getting there it, rather than four hours on the M1 and M6. Absolute nightmare. And then the third bit is the freight sector. You know, what, what, is, what are the railways good at doing in terms of freight? They're good at carrying bulk things like aggregates and coal and whatever, and they're good at carrying uh, big boxes. So those are the things that uh, we should work towards having a railway that thrives in those sectors. Right. And I, 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 if you ask people what do they think of the, the, the rail system as it is, and I think you'd get words like uh, expensive, unreliable, slow perhaps, if you compare it with many other parts of the world. And I sort of had that thought, but I've actually started using the train a bit more lately. So I went up to see my mum who lives in Cheshire and I live down in Farnham in Surrey. And at the time I thought, oh, that's a bit pricey because it cost me £102.60 uh, for, for your off-peak return. Um, but when I uh, sort of tried to compare that to the cost of driving and you, you sort of throw in all the costs. So there's an insurance company called Nimble Fins. No, I've never heard of them either. Uh, they've just done some research that they reckon. By the time you factor in all the costs, it costs 47 pence per mile to run a car these days. And, and obviously with fuel prices, that's only going to get higher. So actually on that basis, it would cost £193.64 to reach my mum. So actually on that basis, trains are very good value. And then I looked at how much it costs to get into uh, to London from Farnham at peak time. £36.50, which everyone here says that's horrendous, the cost of trains, but that's 45p per mile. So that's actually cheaper than the cost of running a car. And of course, it takes an hour each way, whereas uh, traveling from here to London by car would take, I don't know, two hours, two and a half hours each way. And then you've got to park. And and then you're, you know, the, the when you buy the ticket, it says uh, this is 70% less CO2 than driving. So actually, on all that basis, it's a very uh, lengthy way of actually saying, even though we don't think it, railways are actually quite good value for money, aren't they? Uh, uh, absolutely. I mean, they should be better value for yeah. money. Uh, I think the pricing structure is insane. And I can give a, a, an example of that. When I was, I was Paddington Station the other day at five o'clock in the evening, I, I, had a, I was buying a, a ticket that was quite expensive. And then these two Americans are, arrived at the desk and said, we want to get to Bristol. And they said, well, it's going to cost you £250 for the two of you <laughs> to get to Bristol. But if you wait till seven o'clock, which is about an hour and a half away, uh, then uh, it will only cost you £70 or £80 for the two of you. And that kind of thing is, is completely insane. But from a societal point of view, it's very important to recognise that the railways have enormous advantages, as you suggest, in terms of the environment, in terms of uh, reducing congestion, 
um, in terms of uh, you know the health benefits of the fact that people have to walk to the station and and um, you know maybe kind of uh, exercise a little bit, whereas when they jump in their car, uh, it's door to door and they get absolutely no exercise. It's totally unhealthy. So uh, there are huge societal advantages, and that's why to come on in a way to your next question, that's why talking about the railways in terms of taxpayers' money and it being a waste and so on, it's really nonsensical. So, so, so Christian, that it's a service, in a sense, a public service, which should be offered via, well, in the way that other services used to be, some of them before they were privatised, of course, but perhaps nationalised service simply offers people a, a relatively cheap way of travel. That's the future. That, that's absolutely right. And it should be presented as such. And the trouble is you get... Uh, some politicians who are uh, anti-rail say, oh, this is all a waste of money. Well, uh, you know, uh, as uh, uh, is easy to point out, and Peter Hitchens did it in a column recently, um, you know, we don't pay uh, for Acacia Avenue, you know, we don't pay for that uh, infrastructure uh, to use, use to use it. You know, we just have our car and our car drives along Acacia Avenue. Our kids go to school, we don't pay for that. Our uh, we go to hospital when we're uh, ill or injured and we don't pay for that. We don't pay for the army. We don't pay for the, pay for the police. So in the same way, uh, the, the, the railways are a service, which, of course, we will pay something towards. But it doesn't mean we have to pay the whole cost of it. And what I can't stand, and after writing about this for 30 years, you know, I'm still banging on about it, is that you get these people who, who just say, well, the railways have to be commercial. No, they don't. They really, really don't. They, they're, a, they're a service. You know, it, you know, you can't, for example, run the London Underground commercially. That It just is too expensive to provide that service, to dig the tunnels, to create new lines and so on. It's never going to work, right? It just doesn't work commercially. But my God, it works from a social society point of view. And I guess it's the point, isn't it? It's the interplay between rail and all the other services that that you use. So if you're getting people off rail, you are perhaps getting them off. I mean, if we didn't have trains going into London, uh, then just imagine how long it would take to drive into London. So, so there's that, that societal benefit is sort of cost subsidising, uh, you know, the damage to the environment, but also the congestion that we'd see on uh, on other forms of transport. Absolutely. You try to tell them that to the, uh, the drivers, the motorists are obsessed with, oh, you know, uh, the car is the only way of getting around. Um, and, you know, I, I shouldn't be paying my taxes towards uh, uh, these train companies or whatever. And, of course... By, by paying those taxes, they're, they're benefiting from it. But uh, unfortunately, society doesn't seem to uh, work out or the presentation of our transport choices and is not made within that framework. We would just say, well, it's, it's just, you know, the trains are subsidised and that's it. I, I'm so old, and one of the great advantages of that is, of course, I get a senior citizen's rail card and that uh, cuts it down a lot. But I'm also old enough to remember British Rail. I mean, talk about presentation. My God, British Rail was a, was a byword for incompetence and uh, inability to to get you there. You know, we're, we're getting there. I think was one of the slogans that everyone thought was so funny. It, it, you know, it, it, most people don't have a rosy remembrance, uh, Christian, of what British Rail was like. And the theory was privatise, and you get investment. You get real money put in to get more carriages, more uh, rolling stock, uh, better carriages, better services. Um, and I mean, in a sense, certainly in the first part of it that was true wasn't it um well no and as you know i've written this book called uh a british rail a new history 
which uh, looks at this obviously in, in some depth. And there's no doubt that in the early days, uh, British Railways, as it was then called, was uh, you know a, a pretty moribund organisation. It kept steam engines for far too long. It uh, had a very poor management structure. It spent a lot of money on something called the modernization plan in the 50s that didn't really work very well. But in the last 10 years of its existence, it got the right structure. It was divided into three passenger groupings, Intercity, Network Southeast, and Regional Railways. And uh, Intercity was such a, a well such a, a well-liked brand that it was imitated across the world. There's services called Intercity in all sorts of places. It was profitable, uh, it ran uh, you know, efficient, uh, speedy. Uh, frequent services between uh, the main cities, uh, towns and cities in, in Britain, and it was highly effective. Now, the w interesting one out of this is Network Southeast, which was the commuter services around London, which were a disparate bunch of commuter services, some of them very poor, some of them okay. That was generally sorted out, and Network Southeast actually broke even, which is extraordinary for a service that is very heavily used in the mornings, very heavily used in the evenings, but little used kind of during the day and by encouraging people to use it more during the day uh british rail managers notably a guy called chris green who's very innovative uh actually managed to turn the economics round. and so uh to then kind of say oh british rail was you know this tired old organization was a complete mistake and it was privatized at just the wrong time. If it had been privatized 10 years before, he said, oh, yes, it was an inefficient organization that wasn't that was badly run and you know was not commercially minded. In fact, the British Rail that was broken up at privatization was uh, uh, you know, an efficient, effective uh, organization that created a lot of you know uh, created a lot of uh, interesting brands like Travelers Fair and uh, as I said, Intercity and, and uh, Casey Jones. And, you know, uh, that was actually uh, looking outwards and was uh, was uh, cost effective. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about my youth as well. I'm obviously, as you, you can tell from the voice, younger. quite a few years younger than Roger, you know, but what, three or four even. Decades. I, and I was interested in trains when I was a, a young lad and it was uh, British Rail and uh, I, you know, was a bit of a rail nerd for a while until I realised if I wanted to have a girlfriend, I probably needed to move on from that part of my life. <laughs> I went through the same process. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, the British Rail, I remember, is the uh, you know is the, the the company that was looking at the APT the advanced passenger train that tilted you know high speed train that was tilting around the corners and the uh, the the high speed diesel train HS uh, the HST you know that was all quite innovative they yeah, were numbers and initials were things you like yeah, yeah exactly yeah. absolutely uh, so but you know and that that innovation was coming from within rather than buying trains from overseas so it seems it seems to have lost a lot of that as well uh, that's right I mean British Rail was not just a, a train company. You know, it it, uh, uh, it owned hotels. Yeah. Uh, it ran uh, the ferries. It uh, uh, ran, you know, quite interesting services like motor rail and sleeper services. Mm. Um, you know, it was uh, a whole huge kind of transport undertaking. So it's cut up at its prime, is what you're saying, basically. But so, what? How has it gone yeah. so wrong when we look at you know taxpayers' value for money now? So government. Total government support. These are figures that I got from the uh, from the office of, of Rail and Road. 
in 2021 prices, so it's comparable to, you know, let's compare yeah. then and now in 2021 prices. In 1985 to 1990, government support per year averaged £1.7 billion. Uh, for the five years to 2019, uh, so the same value of money, £9.1 billion. So the cost of running railways to the taxpayers mushroomed more than five times in the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, you know, that, that is the exact opposite of what Margaret Thatcher well, promised Well, yeah, us. but can I drop into this, Christian? That oh, the fact- I was going to say, it wasn't, it wasn't Margaret Thatcher who privatised It was John Major. Very right. important. Oh, yes, John Major, very much a train man. Similar interests, I think, probably in terms of train numbers uh, uh, in all that. <laughs> but, but no, Christian, the point I was going to make was what's happened, those figures recently, don't forget a number of the franchises have been were brought back even before the pandemic because of failure of, um, uh, of performance. So that sense of the government putting more money in may be related to that. Yeah, no, it's start, but it, it started uh, uh, before that. It wasn't because they were brought in house. They were brought in house because they failed. Not, no, they didn't. Uh, uh, it wasn't then that the costs went up after they were brought in house. And this is a, a big irony about which I have written many times is the fact that one of the reasons for privatisation was uh, to cut costs and uh, make British Rail uh, more efficient. And and quite the opposite happened. And and. When you start thinking about it, it's pretty logical because what the privatisation did was to break it up, break up a a unified organisation into lots of uh, little component parts, which then had to have contracts with one another, which then didn't necessarily have uh, incentives that were aligned, uh, which were all kind of trying to make a a profit. And it just uh, was a a much more uh, expensive and inefficient process than uh, had gone previously. In fact, the BBC did something like that. I'll give you an example of what sort of thing. The BBC uh, used to use its own archives and it didn't charge for them. And then it started charging to use its own archives. Of course, people went elsewhere and uh, didn't bother using the BBC archives and it cost the organisation more. The same thing happened in the railways in Spain. Mm. You know, you got kind of... Internal pricing going on. Yeah, Yeah. internal pricing kind of uh, was... Yes, it, it's disguised. Uh, you know, you don't know what those internal costs are. But when you try and kind of externalize them and and expose them, you end up kind of paying a lot more for for things because you're 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 all paying each other kind of large amounts of money to to do things, which before were done in a kind of coherent, integrated way, and that's why. Uh, privatization and in particular fragmentation was such a bad idea and they're now trying mm. to fix it well one of the issues uh, obviously there christian is is, is the, the you know you have the stations and the and the track uh in one form of ownership and, and the railway companies in another i mean and the confusions obviously and, and multiplicities of, of cost are obvious there too but in a sense i mean we, we we're talking i suppose into the same idea that what is needed in a sense is renationalization but how do we get get there is it a question now of just overnight saying right enter companies uh, forget that bring everything back in house the trains the rolling stock the track the stations all of that and make it one national enterprise in other words go back to to pre-privatization and before you answer Christian, just an observation i mean this was, would have been a hugely controversial thing to say a couple of years ago that we obviously need to we obviously need to renationalize railways i mean jeremy corbyn was saying that and he was lambasted for it i suspect many tory mps now will be saying that's what exactly what we need because as it well. kind of happened during the pandemic anyway it's already happened, yeah. Well, as I mentioned, Peter Hitchens, who is a, a right-wing commentator, mm. is a great fan of, of bringing it back. The trouble is, uh, chaps, is that uh, once you break something up and you you uh, then kind of sell off most of it, 
some of it disappears, like British Rail had a very good research unit that kind of developed things. It used to manufacture at least some of its uh, own uh, trains. Uh, it, it did all sorts of things that uh, had no longer can be brought back in. Notably, uh, it sold off, or rather the government sold off, all the rolling stock, and nobody is actually going to rebuy that. Mm. Um, and also you then have this complicated interrelationship, as you said, between the track and infrastructure and uh, the operations. Blending that back in is the key to saving money, uh, but that doesn't necessarily recreate the old uh, British Rail. You'd have to do a, a lot more, uh, some of which is probably impossible, but it would be a start yeah. uh, if you had it all under one organisation. Now, the problem is that there are plans to create this great British Railways, which uh, uh, this legislation is due to, to come in quite soon. They, they've uh, got yet another consultation about it, another review about it, uh, which I, I just came out on June the 9th and so on. But they are working towards great British railways. The trouble is there is still this obsession that you have to outsource uh, the operations. And so we're going to end up with a kind of half-baked renationalization that doesn't work. I mean, in my mind, I mean, I'm not a supporter of privatization, but if you're going to privatize it, just privatize it. And if mm. you're going to nationalize it, nationalize it properly. Uh, but having yet another half-baked solution, I think, will be well, expensive and ineffective. It's easier to pass the blame, though, isn't it? The, for, for each side, if you do that, maybe that's part of it. But what about the, the issue that we face now, uh, which is, you know, we've got railway workers striking, saying they're not getting paid enough. So uh, I looked at the average. I, You know, you, you can look in different places to try and find out what the average railway worker is getting. But if you look at the uh, site totaljobs.com, they say the average salary for railway workers is 45000 based on 414 jobs that are available right now. And I look at that... Uh, as, no, that's not right. I mean, that's not right. Isn't I mean, those are available no. jobs, and they tend to be at the managerial end. As I understand it, it's about 30 grand is the... Right. Uh, 30, 31,000 is about the, 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 the median level. Of course, there's some very highly paid people uh, at the top there. But the average, uh, you know, staff worker on the platform... Uh, or the gate line is likely to get around around thirty uh, k. Uh, but more for train drivers. So I think train drivers. But train are... drivers get a lot more. Yes. Yeah. But they're not on strike at the moment, and yeah. uh, you know they're not surprisingly pretty satisfied with their lot. Yeah, I, I should think so because they're getting paid like a, a, a lot more than a HGV driver, for example. And I think yeah. you know there's probably a lot more, or a bus driver. Yeah, yeah, a lot more skill and stress involved in trying to navigate the traffic than trying to make sure that you're keeping the train on the tracks. Uh, no, no, there's a lot of skill required to drive a train. Remember, you're in charge of possibly a thousand people, um, and it it uh, uh, you know is a highly skilled job. But nevertheless, they are paid pretty well compared to those other jobs you mentioned. And they're trying to create efficiencies like getting rid of uh, you know less staff on the trains for example. Uh, I mean is that is that a, is that a sensible Well move? I think that's a big mistake. I mean mm. I mean yes the the government is portraying the industry as having 19th century practices actually uh, uh, how's this for a statistic that is in my book uh, under British Rail uh, in the 50 years, they went from 650,000 workers to 150,000 workers. In other words, they shed in the 50 years of the BR existence 10,000 jobs a year. And some of that has uh, has uh, continued. Although under privatisation, the numbers have gone up because precisely a lot of people are 
uh, marking each other's homework. And, and there's a whole host of people have been taken on, for example, to uh, dela attribute delays. You know, if you have a delay, whose fault is it? Is it the freight companies, is it the train operators, is it network rail? And we need to know that because they all have to pay compensation to but, one another. So the privatization process actually made the, the, the railways. Yeah, but, but, uh, but Christian, forgive different. me for putting my neocon hat on at this point and saying the idea that a nationalized industry is more efficient than a privatized system when the incentive, the profit incentive, if you like, is lacking. It's simply a system that works because people pay you to come to work. End of. I mean, it seems to go against all economic orthodoxy. No, it doesn't. No. I mean, uh, that's the idea and the neocon idea, as you confess, that uh, people... That, only do that hat doesn't suit him, by the way. No, no, it's not my norm. It doesn't fit me at all. <laughs> all right. and that's, uh, I think people only do things for money. They need uh, financial incentives. This is the whole kind of, indeed, the, the neocon idea that, uh, you know, the chief executive needs to be paid a, a million pounds extra because, you know, he ties his own shoelaces. And uh, I think that uh, really goes against a lot of what you see very good uh, public service. I went on the railways in Norway the other uh, uh, earlier this year, um, and it was amazing how that was just a quietly run, uh, you know, efficient public service. The, the, the guards were incredibly friendly. There was nice food on board. Uh, everything was very relaxed about it, and it was public service at its best. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that you need, uh, you know, there's good private sector organisations and there's good public sector organisations. Uh, but, uh, you know, research has shown that it's not the ownership structure that makes an organisation good. It's uh, the managers uh, and the, 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 the ethos of the organisation. You can have good or bad in both sectors. Well, you can use the neocon argument as well to, to, to actually justify why wages are going up so much. And that's because if there's only one rail company and you're a train driver, you work for that company. If you've got multiple rail companies, you choose which one you work for and you sort of can pitch for higher wages. I don't know how much of that's going on. Uh, no, that's, that's going on enormously with the drivers. I mean, the other staff are less so, but one of the reasons why drivers get you know, 50, 60K a year is because they, they bid up the train operators against each other, which yeah. is a, quite an ironic thing that the, 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 the way that it was structured has meant that the drivers have, a, a, a as you say, a, a kind of advantage because they have a skill that uh, is, is not easily replicatable. So uh, their wages have been bid up enormously. That is why, one that, uh, you know, Aslev has walked, uh, 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 laughed all the way to the bank in that. So just quickly on the, on the rail strike. So are you a supporter of it? Do you think they've got a case? Well, uh, yeah, I, I slightly sit on the fence of this because mm. I, I, I do feel they have a case. I do feel that the government is really uh, liking the idea of confrontation to take uh, the mind of the people off all sorts of other issues. It's not kind of working towards a solution. I mean, Grant Shapps has refused to sit down with the, with the unions, claim it's nothing to do with him, which is nonsense, because, of course, it is all to do with him. Um, but I do think that the railway workers are probably making a, a, a mistake in terms of the fact that I can't really see how they can, how they can win this. Um, you know, it, it's uh, against an obdurate government uh, intent on, on confrontation, uh, they've got real problems, but they do have a case. They haven't had mm. uh, a wage rise for two or three years. I think, uh, you know, it's unseemly for government ministers, as happened with Simon Clark, the Treasury Minister yesterday, to go on uh, the radio and say, well, sorry, chaps, you can't have 
an inflation rise, just an inflation, not inflation busting, but an inflation rise uh, because that's inflationary, um, and therefore you have to take a hit to your living standards. Yeah, but that, um, that applies to everybody, you have doesn't to lift it? More and poorly, it? Yeah, you know? but that is the big fear, isn't it? Because I mean, the Bank of England saying inflation could reach eleven percent this year, and if uh, and that they there is this big fear, and that's why they push up interest rates. They want people to actually lose jobs so that there's a, a, a push down on wages, because otherwise, if everyone got an inflation wage of eleven percent, they're right, we would have a spiralling of inflation. So they're trying to keep it under well, control when they can. I don't. See the logic of that actually because you have the inflation rise one year and then inflation goes down if it's due to these external circumstances and the next year you have a, a, a lower pay rise yeah um, totally I with you but to, but i don't buy that try, try telling the bank of england uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna steer phil and you away from uh, from what's a more general economic argument and actually yeah. what i want to do christian is, is mention something which we haven't in any of this which relates, I suppose, to the whole issue of mass investment. And let's say HS2, we haven't mm. mentioned it, is, you know, the uh, costs like are staggering. The incompetence so far, I have to say, and what we've seen of the way it's been handled has been pretty staggering too. Yeah. And even if, again, looking at something different, but uh, another government or uh, local authority body pushing the Elizabeth line, of course, came in hugely late, hugely over budget, uh, is actually there. I mean, again, wearing my neocon hat, the efficiency of government in doing big projects of this kind necessary for the rail infrastructure isn't very obvious is it and what are we up um, to about 98 billion is the sort of latest cost i think estimate and that's without the leg well, to leads it keeps uh, going up yes i mean there's various costs for it. they do try and chop bits off it as they have done recently uh, by topping off a uh, a link a bit north of manchester uh, but uh they are spending i mean it's remarkable actually just to consider this for a moment that you know, we have a a, a government that's intent on uh, you know, squeezing the rail unions. That says, well, we're going to have to cut back on the timetable because uh, the railway is costing so much, and yet they're spending a hundred million a week, a hundred million a week. That's five billion a year on uh, HS2 and a railway. Uh, frankly, I, I've always argued is probably unnecessary and, uh, you know, the wrong way to go about kind of uh, boosting capacity. And yet, uh, you know, they're stuck with that. And so mm. there's a there's a there's a big uh, a contradiction there. But to pick out your point about the, the general large projects, yes, they're, uh, you know, large projects have always tended to go over budget. And that's why they end up in government hands because the private sector can't take the risk of them. But take the Elizabeth line. Okay, it's 25% over the original budget, which was a bit of a squeeze and it's three years late. But, but, you know, go to talk to anyone who has been on the Elizabeth line um, and they'll say, look, this is magnificent. We want more of this. And in the way really stuff like that is priceless yeah you know what would london be without the london underground which you know was uh, built largely by the private sector actually but usually they kind of lost money or certainly struggled to to, to break even um and yet have left a, an amazing legacy and the elizabeth line is an amazing legacy right um, and we need you know it, it's it's testimony to how uh, efficient railways are that you couldn't you know deliver you know, thousands of people into Oxford Circus or Bond Street or whatever uh, efficiently 
Haven't uh, been on it yet, but yeah, uh, I've heard without, heard doing, only, the, without doing the, the without it being on the railway. Heard only good things about it. Look, I, I can give you an argument for HS2 maybe to wrap up, and you can you can disagree with me, which would be a bit bizarre because you're the you, you know you're the one championing railways. But look, a couple of figures first of all before I talk about HS2, the number of rail journeys uh, for the first two decades of this uh, century has increased on average three and a half percent. The amount of um, distance travelled on our roads by cars has grown by less than one percent. So, when, you know, more of us are moving over to, to trains. But in 2019, the total kilometres driven by cars was 448 billion. By train, it was less than 67 billion. So we're travelling almost seven times more by car. But as we said earlier, you know, trains might actually be cheaper than cars. And if fuel goes up, then maybe there'll be more interest in train travel. But we have that big problem that do we have the capacity? And the answer is clearly no, which then becomes HS2. Do we build more railways so that we have more capacity if you've got faster trains on a on a railway line where every train is fast uh, without having to stop at stations then obviously you can run them every five minutes if you want and they don't get held up so you know presumably you'd get much more capacity off the one line and finally just in my, in my final case with hs2 my lord uh, is there's an economic argument called economic complexity that large economies do very well when there's a, a mix of industries and greater connectivity within the country so that would mean that you've got a business that's developing leads that needs regular interaction with a company in the southeast of england and those companies and those countries that develop that economic complexity tend to export more they produce more sophisticated products and because they're they're producing more sophisticated products. Uh, they are therefore more future-proof and more likely to innovate. So scientists have got a formula behind all of this economic complexity. And top of the pile, the countries that are doing really well on this are Japan, Switzerland, South Korea, and Germany. We rank 13th. But you look at those top countries. Interestingly, they've all got high-speed rail networks. Uh, yes, no, that's a that's a, a convincing case, and I think you've argued it better than the HS2 uh, press office uh, do, frankly. Mm. Um, I think that to counter that, uh, I would say that if if I was transport secretary and I had a hundred billion uh, to spend, I would invest it in uh, urban infrastructure, uh, particularly for cycling. Uh, for suburban railways, for underground railways, tramway systems, getting people off their cars in uh, the uh, urban context uh, where, you know, most of that mileage that you mentioned uh, yeah. takes place. And I'll spend some of it on improving uh, the existing uh, network, uh, getting around kind of certain bottlenecks on the railway well, system and so on, and not all on one grand projet that... Uh, uh, will uh, serve some people who happen to live near it or on it very well, but will also generate an awful lot of car journeys because there are very few stations and people yeah. will end up driving to uh, the nearest station and well, so on. But I commend your I commend your your very uh, succinct and uh, yeah. We'll we'll, we'll send we'll, we'll, you know, he, he, he he moonlights for HS two. This is the, the well, awful, awful dirty clearly. secret. Yes. Um, but Christian, as we draw this this discussion, fascinating discussion to to a close. One, let me inject one thing. I'd be interested to get your view on it briefly. The suggestion that perhaps actually we're not going to use uh, trains or indeed any other form of transport as much as we used to signs that. Post-pandemic, we're not getting back into our cars or onto the trains as much as we did. More working from home, of course. That's a bit of a cliche, a general aversion perhaps to going places as well as a hangover from that. And if that's true, maybe all this is slightly academic. We're just not going to go anywhere very much anymore. Uh, yeah, no, I, I don't buy that at all. We've uh, uh, Human beings are always like travel. We like interaction. 
Uh, it's interesting that actually leisure travel is almost back up to the 100% uh, pre-pandemic levels. Yes, there's going to be some people who are going to work from home more. Uh, I was in a pub on Monday uh, up in town a couple of weeks ago, and there's absolutely virtually nobody in it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think, you know, working is going to become, you know, work, working in the office is Tuesdays to Thursdays now, apparently. Uh, I think they call it twats. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, but uh, I think that will, some of that will be reined back. Some of the office, uh, some, some of the office, I mean, companies running offices will want to see more of their employees. Um, some of it uh, will uh, be replaced by, as I say, the leisure travel. And uh, I think that overall, um, you know, the impact will be a, a significant percentage, maybe 10 or 15 percent uh, fewer kind of people uh, going to the office on, on average. But we're still going to need uh, the rail service to, to deliver the, the, the other people there. And I, I don't think this is an existential threat. Um, I think it's just uh, one that the railways uh, will need to adapt to. And it might be well be a good thing. I mean, actually, yeah. peak times are expensive for railways. They don't really like peak trains because they have to buy their peak times because they have to buy extra uh, trains to operate. They only operate kind of, you know, twice in the day. Got to pay um, more staff. And, yeah, and, so it's, yeah, it's, all, it's all that peak usage thing, isn't it? Look, I'm, I'm yeah. really glad we're not on the BBC because when you said twats, <laughs> we would have had to have cut you off at that point. But it's been yeah, we're great, great, we're great, to have, great to have you on, Christian. It's been a useful half hour. Thanks. Yeah, indeed. A really fascinating look there at uh, the railways and their future and what may it be. Well, we've talked about the destination. We've talked about uh, the uh, how we get there. And uh, I suppose the unanswered question which none of us can ask is whether we'll get there on time before the whole system system grinds to a halt. But Christian, thank you so much, very much uh, thanks to you for a fascinating uh, chat about that key subject here on The Wycliffe. And we should add that Christian has a new book out that he mentioned fleetingly, British Rail, A New History by Christian Walmart. 20 quid on Amazon for the hardback edition. You can read it while you're waiting for the trains to start again, perhaps. Now, next week, as NATO meets in Madrid, what has Ukraine done to an organisation that seemed to be losing its way? Has Ukraine actually given NATO renewed purpose? We'll talk to the Telegraph's defence and security editor next week on The Y Curve. See you then. Thanks for listening. The Y Curve.